everyone, and welcome to the Voorhees IP VIP podcast. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I will be your host for this episode. Today, we're speaking with Tom Thrash, who's a patent agent in the Houston office of Voorhees, Sater, Seymour, and Pease, and a member of the Intellectual Property and Technology Group. Tom will be discussing U.S. provisional and non-provisional patent applications and filing strategies. This episode is geared primarily toward those generally unfamiliar with U.S. patent laws, but those who have some patenting experience might also benefit from Tom's insights and experience. And now here's my conversation with Tom. All right. Tom Thrash is with us today, and he is a patent agent out of the Houston office of Voorhees and a member of the Intellectual Property and Technology Group. Tom's a PhD chemist. He received his doctorate from Rice University, and Tom also received a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Henderson State University. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Excellent. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the basics of U.S. patent law surrounding what are called provisional and non-provisional patent applications. So for our listeners, the general content we're going to have here is going to be for those that are generally unfamiliar with the patent process. But I think those that are a little bit more seasoned will be able to maybe pick up on some tips that you have. Uh, You've been practicing for, for quite some time, and I'm sure you have some insights that would be good reminders for everybody, but also to teach those that are generally unfamiliar. So with that, let's jump into it. So the first question I have is, can you just kind of give us a broad overview of what the difference between a provisional patent application and a non-provisional patent application is? As Jeremy said, there are two options for filing uh, utility patent applications in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. One of them is a provisional application, and the other is a non-provisional application. And there are some, there's some key differences between the two. In the case of a provisional application, they are not published. They are not examined. They're less formal in form than our non-provisional patent applications. So overall, they can be prepared more quickly, oftentimes at lower cost. Another thing to consider is they don't have claims per se since they aren't examined. That said, well, I'll talk more about claims later on in provisionals, but just be aware that they can take on any number of forms and they may or may not look exactly like a subsequent non-provisional application. Well, good. So, so how long does somebody have to file a patent? You come up with an invention and you want to make sure it's protected, either going down the provisional or the non-provisional route. What's your suggestion? How long does somebody have to actually pursue something and make sure that they don't lose rights? In both cases, you have to file a provisional patent application or a non-provisional application before a patentability barring event, just to use a generic term. This could be some sort of upcoming prior art disclosure. It could be an offer for sale. It could be some sort of presentation that's going to take place. Depending on how much lead time you know before you have an upcoming patentability barring event, this would be your own that you're aware of. You can either file a a provisional patent application or a non-provisional patent application. Non-provisional patent applications tend to take a little bit longer to, to draft since they are more formal in form. So a a provisional application ends up shielding a future non-provisional application from the patentability barring event. If you are filing a non-provisional application, it must be filed with one year of a provisional application. And when you file a provisional application, it establishes a priority date. The priority date is the date when the provisional application was filed. I said earlier, a non-provisional application has to be filed within one year of that priority date. If you don't file within one year of that priority date, the provisional application becomes abandoned. It never publishes. Basically, it's like it never existed in the eyes of the USPTO. No one ever sees it. The other thing to realize is that 
just jumping back to non-provisional applications do publish. They publish 18 months after the earliest priority date. So that would be either if you file a non-provisional application directly, or if you file a provisional application and then, and then file a subsequent non-provisional, your application does publish with some rare uh, exceptions. Right. I think you can file a uh, non-publication request, correct? Only in the U.S. All other jurisdictions in the world publish their applications. If you're only going to file in the U.S., well, you can you can file a non-publication request. The application publishes only if the application becomes issued as a patent. But if you're filing anywhere else in the world, that's not an option. Yeah. So that's kind of a strategy some companies will take if they want to protect maybe some technology that they don't want out there and, you know, their competitors to see until it actually issues a patent where they can enforce it. So it's something to keep in mind. Yes. Um, so, so what exactly is required to file? So you've got an invention, you want to get it protected, but there are requirements to file a provisional and non-provisional. Can you, can you go through those real quick? Absolutely. Both types of applications require what's called an enabling disclosure. Enabling disclosure must enable, for lack of a better word, a person of ordinary skill in the art to make and use the claimed invention. Now, what constitutes enablement differs a little bit between a provisional application and a non-provisional application. A non-provisional application must, must directly support its claims. Whatever is written in the application itself must support the claims that are in the application. A provisional application, on the other hand, it must contain sufficient written description support to support the claims of a subsequent non-provisional application. That is because the claims or the provisional applications themselves are not examined. Mm -hmm. If the written description of a provisional application is not sufficient to support the claims of a subsequent non-provisional application, you don't have the benefit of that earlier priority date. So uh, inter intervening prior art, your own disclosure or publication or whatever, could be a patentability barring your event if your provisional application is not written with sufficient clarity and uh, sufficiency of disclosure. Right, but it's not, it's not a deal breaker, right? It's not a patent killer if you don't disclose everything in the provisional when you file the non-provisional. It's, it's more of just you lose that deadline, correct? Yeah, you would, you would lose that deadline. And if, if there's a patentability barring event between when you filed your provisional and your provisional wasn't written adequately, yeah. and the subsequent disclosure could be detrimental to your future non-provisional patent application. Mm -hmm. For that reason, we, there are, like I said, there's any number of ways that levels of detail that can be written in a provisional application. They can be invention disclosure form that's just been um, modified slightly to lay out the base concepts. They don't necessarily look like a patent. We encourage our clients to get their provisional applications as complete as possible so that they look as much as possible like the end product non-provisional application is going to look like. I have actually filed myself what's called cover sheet patent applications, right? For provisionals, for example, let's say a company or an inventor is going to disclose it tomorrow. They want to get something on file quickly. What are the base requirements with that? What are called, I guess, cover sheet patent applications? Those are certainly an option. Filing a cover sheet provisional is better than filing nothing at all, because if you do nothing at all, you lose your patent rights. So I look at those as getting the base concepts of the invention out there in provisional form. Typically, if you filed a cover, a cover sheet provisional, we would encourage filing a subsequent, more fleshed out provisional application as soon as possible thereafter. And then, then of course, a non-provisional would follow within one year of the first provisional filing. 
Right. Uh, the, re the reason for that is in the U.S., examiners are sometimes willing to read between the lines of a of a provisional application and understand that the provisional application supports the more fleshed out claims and description of a non-provisional. Other jurisdictions are not willing, Europe in particular, are not willing to read between the lines so much. They want to see provisional application more closely match the disclosure of a subsequent non-provisional to, to be able to determine, yes, the provisional application fully supports the claims of the subsequent non-provisional application. All right. Well, um, let's put ourselves in the shoes of uh, somebody looking to file something. Why would I want to file a provisional instead of a non-provisional? Well, there are a couple of reasons to do that. As we discussed earlier, one reason would be if you need to file something quickly, if you have a patentability barring event coming up tomorrow, we can put to, you can put together a quick, non, a quick provisional application and get it on file just to get the base concepts established an earliest priority date. The other reasons would be if you're not having a file tomorrow, want to just get something on file and consider your patentability position over the next year. Oftentimes companies will file a provisional application while they're deciding if they want to go to the extra time and expense of seeking uh, non-provisional patent protection. Right. So you get that patent pending. Right. That's, that is an important thing to add is that you can mark your uh, inventions as patent pending after a provisional application has been filed. Another reason would be if you are running a project where you're continuously generating data and you're, you feel like you're ready to file a provisional application, but you're going to collect data over the next several months, you can file a provisional application and then incorporate the new data once the non-provisional application is filed. You can't do that to a non-provisional directly because that would be adding what's called new matter to the application, which is not allowed. All right. Let's... Uh... We'll talk about a different scenario. So let's assume that we've kept our invention completely confidential. Nobody knows about it except us. We want to get it out there at some point. Is there a benefit to filing quickly, early, or waiting until everything's perfectly refined? You know, what, what's your suggestions on that? Given that we have a first-to-file system in the U.S. and the rest of the world is a first-to-file system as well, we encourage filing early and often. If you have an invention that you feel is, is ready to file as a provisional application, we do encourage that. The cost of filing a provisional application is usually minimal compared to the uh, potential cost of losing patent rights. Right. So you're not going to lose any priority or you know, lose any rights if you have it all confidential. Just You want to get it out there just in case somebody else may be inventing the same thing and beat you to the patent office. Essentially. That, that's right. And from uh, other than... Provisional applications themselves not being directly examined, they provide the same protection once a non-provisional application has been filed. All right. Is it possible to file multiple provisional patent applications on the same invention? That's a good question. And we, we've talked about that a little bit already. For instance, if you have to file a first application quickly, you might get the base concepts in the first provisional application. And then a week or a month later or whatever, you think, well, there's there's some additional concepts I wanted to get in that application. We might file a, a fall of what I would call a follow-up provisional application to the first provisional, flesh out the invention a little bit more. You might even file a third provisional application later on. Maybe you collect data in six months. And then what you often would do in that case would be you would file one non-provisional application altogether, filing the non-provisional application at the priority date of the first filed provisional application. 
That's not to say you can't file separately on each of the provisional applications on the same invention. Figure out if you can just can get different claim scope for the different provisionals, but it's usually more cost effective to just wrap it up into all one one non-provisional application and leave it at that. Yeah, definitely. So we've we've talked a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of filing a provisional as opposed to filing a non-provisional. Um, any other insights on that? Uh, there's there's a number of advantages to filing a provisional. There's uh, downsides as well. The key advantages I see in terms of a provisional application, they have lower filing fees. Usually they have lower attorney fees because they can be drafted more quickly. You, you can keep a provisional application secret for the priority year and six months after the priority year. They are less formal, so they, again, so they can be drafted more easily. They can be drafted more quickly. Another key thing that we haven't talked about previously is they don't limit patent term. The patent term for a non-provisional application in the U.S. and the rest of the world for that, generally for the rest of that matter, is 20 years. By filing a provisional application, you get protection for your invention for one additional year while the provisional application is pending, but that does not impact your 20-year term. The downsides I see to a, a provisional application is if you're going to file a non-provisional application under the Patent Cooperation Treaty, that will delay somewhat you're getting a preliminary search report. So it doesn't, during that priority year of a provisional application, you really don't have any feedback from a patent office of, of any kind, giving you a preliminary idea if the invention is patentable or not. Sometimes it's important for companies to gain the publicity of filing non-provisional application because they do become public. It's something they can announce. Mm -hmm. uh, you can certainly announce filing of a provisional application, but it doesn't become public. So it, there's less no, notoriety. Right. The one other thing is that if you are filing a provisional application and a non-provisional application, that does increase your filing fees somewhat, as well as depending on how much the provisional application needs to be cleaned up before the non-provisional is filed, it will increase the uh, attorney drafting fees somewhat. That's why we would encourage getting the provisional application as complete as possible so there's as little cleanup to be done when a non-provisional application is filed. All right. Well, we're talking a little bit about fees, and we're coming up on our time to wrap things up, but I wanted to ask a couple of remaining questions. What can somebody expect for filing fees, not necessarily legal fees for the attorney, but uh, how much does it cost to file a provisional and a non-provisional? So if, since we're talking primarily to an audience that is, uh, is less familiar with the patenting process, I'll talk about small entity fees. Small entity fees are individual inventors, companies that have less than 500 employees. We're not talking about large corporations here. So small entity fees are half of the large entity fees and are now they're called undiscounted fees in the USPTO. But for filing a provisional application, the provisional application filing fee in the USPTO is $150. For filing a non-provisional, the uh, filing fees in the US are about $830. This includes the filing fee, the search fee, and the examination fee. Search fees and examination fees aren't due for uh, provisional applications because they aren't searched or examined. Yeah. In addition, there can be excess claim fees for non-provisional applications as well. That's beyond the scope of this talk. Yeah, but, so for, uh, for a provisional $150, investment just to get patent pending status is a very palatable, appealing route to a lot of people, I think. And it, sometimes inventors will 
take a first crack at writing a provisional application. This could be an invention of disclosure form or a draft specification for a provisional. So if the attorney doesn't have to put a lot of time into it, filing a provisional application doesn't cost a lot in the USPTO. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Tom, I, I got one last question for you. If you get your, your patent on file. People want to know, when am I actually going to get it approved? Is something that I can enforce? How long does it take to get an issued patent? And can I speed it up? Well, if you file a non-provisional application, if you file a provisional application, nothing happens unless you file a non-provisional. So that's one thing that inventors that don't have a lot of patenting experience don't realize. You have to file a non-provisional for anything good to happen. When we we tell our clients they should expect a first office action from the USPTO about two to three years after filing a non-provisional application. And that's not an allowance. That's just when the patent office comes back and says, either the application is allowable or here's some things you need to correct or there's prior art that you need to overcome. We can talk about that at another time. But you should expect your first correspondence, substantive correspondence from the USPTO about two to three years after filing. There are ways to get around that. Some of them cost money. Some of them do not. There's what is called USPTO Track 1 prioritized examination. For a small entity, that's a $2,000 fee. And the goal for Track 1 examination is to get a final disposition, either an allowance or a final rejection within one year within the non-provisional filing date. There's other routes that don't cost money. There's what's called the patent uh, prosecution highway. If you, for instance, if you file a non-provisional application in the U.S., you have a co-pending patent cooperation treaty application where you've gotten a where you've gotten a good search report. In other words, the patent, uh, in other words, the World Intellectual Property Organization or another patent office is examining their claims and said, "We didn't find anything. These claims are patentable." You can transfer that result to the U.S. And they will speed up the examination process for your examination for no fee. That's not to say they will take the uh, other offices' uh, examination results verbatim. They typically will do their own search, but you can speed up the examination that way. There are also provisions for speeding up examinations based on the inventor's health, age or health, particularly the inventor's over 65. And there are ex- also specialized examination programs that will come along from time to time. For instance, uh, small entities that are working on COVID-19 related inventions are eligible for expedited patent examination at the the present time. Yeah, well, this is great. Tom, I I appreciate your time. It's a lot of good insights and good suggestions and counsel you've given us. I hope to speak to you soon again. And again, I appreciate the time you took to, to talk to us today. Thank you. I'm happy to help. All right. This has been an episode of the Vori's IP VIP podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to speak to either myself or any of the guests, please feel free to reach out to us. You can contact us through Vori's website or via the Vori's Intellectual Property Updates webpage on LinkedIn. If you have a suggestion for a podcast topic or would like to recommend a particular guest, we'd love to hear from you. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I hope you can join us next time. 